From high atop Rocky Road in Moab, Utah, it's KZMU News. I'm Molly Marcello. It's Friday, March 18th. A new report by the organization Grand Canyon Trust calls the White Mesa Mill outside Blanding, quote, America's cheapest radioactive waste dump. The group and representatives of the Ute Mountain Ute tribe want the mill to be regulated like one. Justin Higginbottom has more. The White Mesa Mill is the country's last conventional uranium mill. The issue for them, and it's been an issue for a while, is that few are mining uranium anymore. The price just isn't high enough. So starting in the late 80s, the mill began processing alternative feed. That's material, including radioactive waste, which has small amounts of uranium. The mill extracts that and stores what's left in waste ponds at their facility. Via this radioactive Midas touch, the mill is turned into a commercial landfill for contaminated waste. And that places Utah's clean air, water, environment, and people at risk while perpetuating environmental injustices. That's Tim Peterson of Grand Canyon Trust. The new report by his organization says the White Mesa Mill has stored more than 700 million pounds of radioactive waste so far. He says part of that is because... It's cheaper for polluters to send their waste to the mill than to a licensed low-level radioactive waste disposal facility. And then the two examples we were able to find, it's about half the cost to send it to the mill. Peterson's concern is that it isn't about the uranium anymore for White Mesa Mill. The business is about the waste. Here's Joel Briscoe of the Utah House of Representatives. I also remember past governors, Governor Matheson, Governor Bangor, who led high-profile fights to prevent nuclear waste from being brought into Utah. What federal and state regulators have done by allowing uh, the processing under the alternate feed milling concept is we've seems to me we've created a second uranium waste storage site in utah without ever calling it such utah regulators have approved the white mesa mill business model they're operating completely legally and there are sites around the country and europe eager to send radioactive waste to them that includes other tribes like the navajo nation but briscoe thinks if the mill is acting like a landfill then it should be regulated like one In the legislature, I will hear several times a year, some legislators say, we're doing a great job because we don't pick winners and losers. In this instance, it's false because we have picked a winner here. We've picked the White Mesa Mill. We've made energy fuels resources and other people across the country a winner. And in making these groups and this mill a winner, we've made many, many losers. The mill is owned by Energy Fuels Resources, and they don't call their mill a waste dump. They call what they do recycling. In a statement, they say they have removed more than 6 million pounds of uranium and 1.8 million pounds of vanadium from these alternative feeds. And that contributes fuel for green energy. The mill is located just a few miles from a Ute Mountain Ute community. Leaders there have long worried about potential health impacts from the mill, and there are cultural concerns, like burial sites near the facility. Here's Malcolm Lehigh, a member of that tribe. Today, we want to ask the energy fuels if we can go back and do a reburial on the grave sites. We've held on to these, our ancestors that were there, that were taken from the grave sites there. We're asking if we can go back and um, put them within the area there of energy fuels or um, Denison mine, because we think that it's only right that we put our ancestors back. 
Tribe members worry the mill's waste ponds could leak into the area's aquifers. Late last year, the EPA blocked the mill from accepting Superfund site waste because of air quality violations related to those ponds. Here's Regina Lopez-White Skunk, also with the tribe. Who I would like to reach out to is each of you in a very human form and touch your hearts and impact how things are seen so that the message of what this operation really does and how this affects our families, they have faces. They are our hearts. They are our future. They're not just numbers. They're not just cases, medical cases. Ultimately, Lopez and Lehigh want the mill shut down. So more regulation is somewhat besides the point. Last year, their tribe's council passed a resolution calling for operations to cease entirely. According to Energy Fuels, the mill employs nearly 100 people and half of those are from the native community. The company plans to expand into the rare earths market and they say this will help the region economically. It's unclear if the Ute Mountain Ute tribe will see any of those benefits or if there is anything that might make them want to keep the mill next door. Justin Higginbottom for KZMU News. Seven young Utahns filed a lawsuit this week against the state because of its policies related to fossil fuel development. They are arguing that it's hurting their rights to life, health, and safety. Lexi Peary, with our partners at KUER, has more. Natalie Roberts is 15 years old and lives in Salt Lake City. She's a plaintiff in the case being brought against the state. She says it's a problem that Utah is continuing exploration, extraction, and exploitation of fossil fuels, especially since it's leading to problems with air quality, drought, and extreme heat. I've lived in Utah my entire life, and it's been very easy to see that we are in a crisis at this point in time, and that if we don't change our behavior, if we don't get the government to change their behavior, it's, it's not going to end well. This lawsuit is similar to ones happening in several other states. Andrew Welly is an attorney with Our Children's Trust, which works with the kids and teens on these cases. He says they're asking the court to declare some of Utah's laws unconstitutional. It's not that the state is not doing enough to address air quality and climate change issues. They're actively making them worse, and they've enacted policies in Utah's statutory code that make that clear that their aim is to uh, maximize fossil fuel extraction, knowing of the dangers to it. Representatives for the defendants declined to comment. Lexi Peary, KUER News. This report is from our partners at KUER. Researchers in our region have developed a remote control robot that can alert safety inspectors of potential rock slides. Emma Gibson with the Mountain West News Bureau has more. The little robot is a foot or two long, with an audio recorder and a tall stick topped with a silver ball. Once against a rock, the robot named Brutus swings the stick and starts to tap. Dr. Fernando Moreau is the director of the University of New Mexico lab that made Brutus. He says before, inspectors had to tap the rocks and see if it sounded healthy or cracked and dangerous. For the first time, the inspector doesn't need to remember on their head the sound. It's very difficult for humans to remember the sound. So Brutus will record those sounds. He says with Brutus, things can be more efficient and safer for roadside inspectors. The team hopes to customize Brutus to work in many situations, like inspecting historic buildings, piers, and underwater infrastructure. I'm Emma Gibson. And now the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. 
The state trust lands agency is pursuing a land swap with the federal government. As Sophia Fisher of the Times Independent explains, a lot of the lands the agency wants are in Grand County. So CITLA, which as listeners may know, stands for the uh, State of Utah School and Institutional Trust Lands Administration. CITLA is pursuing a large land swap right now with the federal government and the Bureau of Land Management more specifically. Uh, This is actually coming in response to last fall when President Joe Biden restored the original boundaries of the Bears Ears National Monument. And in so doing, ended up encircling hundreds of thousands of acres of Sitla land with the new monument boundaries. And as listeners know, many of Sitla's land holdings are naturally in this kind of checkerboard Mm. fashion across the state, just because of the way they were bequeathed these lands. So up until now, though, a lot of those parcels had been surrounded with Bureau of Land Management parcels, but now they're becoming a national monument. Mm. And Sitla is trying to trade those lands to the federal government for about 145,000 acres of Bureau of Land Management parcels throughout 19 Utah counties. So it's a pretty big swap. Okay. Are there any particular areas that would be interesting to highlight as to where they're looking at swapping into? Yeah, absolutely. So as, as I mentioned, the land swap overall, most of the lands that CITLA wants to give to the federal government are within the boundaries of the new monument. Um, it's about 150, 160,000 acres total, of which 75% or so is in the monument, and is trying to gain, as I mentioned, um, land in 19 counties. But it is worthwhile to note that the county in which they want to gain the most land is Grand County. Sitla, as part of the deal, is looking at gaining 27,000 new acres of land in Grand County. Any spots in particular that you want to highlight? Yeah, so uh, based on a map that it's definitely not final, but I think this is what the proposal looks like right now. There are big swaths Sitla's trying to get in the Labyrinth Canyon area, uh, the area just south of Green River. There are a few spots off of Highway 313, a few spots near Westwater Canyon, and then one or two small parcels in the Moab Valley itself, actually, including northern San Juan County. Okay, so there's a map in the Times Independent where you can see the draft of the swap, basically. This is notable because Sitla obviously has um, a different directive on its lands um, than the federal government does. Did you talk a little bit about that in the article? Um, Not so much. I mean, I do know that Sitla has specified that swaps like these, they're not necessarily an acre for acre deal. Mm Sitla is trying to actually get land that has higher value for Mm. its uses. And and the whole mission of Sitla, um, as, as listeners probably know, is to raise money off the lands they own for public education. This can happen in a variety of ways, you know, through things like development or resource extraction or sales of lands, etc. Um, and, and I haven't gotten much information about specifically why they're pursuing these lands in Grand County. I do know that there are very complex appraisal processes that go into determining what the value of these mm-hmm. lands are to ensure that the land swap is achieving parity. Right. So yeah, I don't have more information on that yet, unfortunately. But, you know, you said this is this is not finalized yet. Where are we in the process right now? Yeah, so it's definitely these things as, with the, the complex appraisal processes, these types of big land swaps. Sitla's done, I think, five so far of these over its history. They can, if not pushed forward quickly, get mired for years in the appraisal process. Um, but Sitla is trying to push this forward pretty quickly. They needed to get a joint resolution passed by the state legislature. It didn't get passed in this session, but they are hoping to get that resolution passed by the state, I think, Legislative Management Committee in its April meeting. And okay. they're expecting that to happen. If that happens, that 
allows Sitla to create a memorandum of understanding with the mm-hmm. BLM and move forward with developing a deal. But I do believe Congress, this will need to go before Congress and get approved by Congress as well. I, I, I'm just like, as you're speaking, I'm like, okay, so months, months, and months, you know. I don't know. I mean, I watched some footage of the outgoing Sitla director, David Yur, uh speaking in a, in a committee meeting when they were trying to get this joint resolution passed. And he was saying, like, th- this may have been kind of a, a marketing tactic, you know, for, <laughs> sure. the, for the people in the, in the room. But uh-huh. he was saying, like, a lot of people are in agreement and we're trying to get this pushed forward so it doesn't get mired the way that it usually does. So I do know that they're trying to have this happen pretty rapidly, I think. You know, this is an interesting piece. Anything that you feel that you want to highlight in it that we didn't get to? I mean, the Grand County Commission did have a discussion on this in their last meeting. So I think listeners, you know, I encourage you to, you know, read the article in the Times and maybe check out that footage, too, from that public meeting or the coverage of it um, to see, you know, what they were talking about, trying to get involved in the process and and maybe reach out to the BLM to let the BLM know the county's thoughts, etc. Where do you want to take us next? Um, Willow Springs Road, Utah Raptor State Park, which was approved last year and, and hopes to come online and open next year in 2023. Uh, they are taking over a lot of that area that's been a very popular dispersed camping area for years just outside of Moab. I mean, seasonal workers, folks who oftentimes have lived in Moab for years, stay there as well as, as recreationists and visitors. Um, and there have been a lot of issues, though, with increasing impacts as the Moab area generally becomes more popular. So there are porta potties that have been in installed in the area and we are all hoping that these will help mitigate the human waste impacts that that area has been grappling with. Like you said, you know, a porta potty was installed on Willow Springs Road. Tell us about the history of this. Well, speaking anecdotally, I know that there was at least one porta potty there in 2020 because okay. I remember seeing it, but I know that there there are a lot more. I think there are 10 or so being put in place by the Utah Raptors State Park Management. I don't know the whole history. But I do know that right now there's the state park as it gets up and running and develops its infrastructure is kind of transitioning to a new form of dispersed camping in the area. They're not going to get rid of it entirely, but they are going to designate specific dispersed camping sites and they might charge an overnight fee. So I think the porta potties are kind of the first step towards concentrating some of the impacts a little more and, and mitigating them. Um, it sounds like I'm reading that also this is the first story in a series of several stories that will explore the impacts of human waste on public lands. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So look forward to more coverage on this in incoming editions. Yeah, finally, there's a, a story that you did in the TI about gas. And is this mm-hmm. going to be an ongoing coverage from the TI as well? Not necessarily. I think we're going to have to keep an eye on prices. Um, as a lot of listeners probably know, they were shooting up last week quite historically um, as, as the world is weaning itself off of Russian oil, as mm-hmm. inflation hits the market, all sorts of factors. So I was able to speak with a couple of, of travelers and visitors at the North Maverick station last week about the impacts that the rising prices are having on their travel plans plans and their overall personal finance. Any notable impressions from uh, folks that you spoke to? Um, one person did mention that he was planning to visit Arches instead of Canyonlands because it's closer to Moab. Oh. Someone did say that he's been a visitor, from someone from Salt Lake, that he's been a visitor to this area for years. And he said, this is the first time coming that I thought I might not be able to come as much because mm. of gas. And, and then another interesting interview with a man talking about the scarcity mindset and seeking cheap gas, because that's if that's the energy you put into the right. universe, that's what you'll receive back. So <laughs> listeners, hey, if it works, it works. <laughs> Sophia Fisher, staff reporter at the Times Independent. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabtimes.com. 
a proposed development would increase the amount of apartments in central Moab, but may displace current tenants living in a trailer court on the property. As Allison Harford of the Moab Sun News explains, it's the latest trailer court likely to be redeveloped within the next year. There's a Provo-based development company called Second Story Capital, um, which bought a property in Moab in 2016 with plans to do a redevelopment. And the property currently has 20 mobile homes, um, and 15 of those are occupied. Mm. On March 10th, the company received unanimous approval from the Moab City Planning Commission to move ahead with plans for an 80-unit complex that they'll call Lost Springs Apartments. So 80-unit complex, is this going to be rentals? Yeah, so right now their plan is for three buildings. Um, The tallest would be two stories, and they'll have 80 units, um, and they also want to make a clubhouse and a pool or hot tub. So they have preliminary approvals. It still, you know, has to go through other planning processes, right? Right. It's not a done deal, and the developer who came to the meeting to explain kind of the project said that they're still not really sure, um, like, if it's going to get done, and they're also not sure how much construction is going to cost or anything. It's just that they have this preliminary approval. Because it's not a done deal, the development company had not yet notified residents, but a few of the residents heard about it through meetings like this one, and they were fairly upset. Like, they hadn't heard anything from their landlords, and they just heard about this project through meetings. Right. A lot of people at the Planning Commission were saying that they're excited for this apartment complex because 80 units is a lot, and the developer said that they want to have long-term residents live there, but also it's like another eviction, and the developer didn't let the current tenants know anything about this. Right. Like you said, um, because it's not you know set in stone, um, the developer said that that's why they didn't notify them, but that's probably um, not something that you want to hear through the grapevine right that the property in which you're living is likely going to be up for this new development Mm -hmm. and i think this conversation is happening when um the planning commission city council members are dealing with evictions we've just had a trailer court where you know locals were evicted from it with Mm -hmm. 30 days notice right yeah um the other part of this is that the complex is currently in two different zones or the property is in two different zones and one of those zones will be subject to a workforce housing ordinance being developed by the city right now Um, and so the city is working on this ordinance that says that any new developments will have to set aside um, like a certain percentage of their units for active employment households meaning like occupants who live and work in Grand County and so that set of units will be the only one that's actually required to have workforce housing and so I think in Moab it just makes people really nervous like this developer can say that they're going to um, you know set aside these units and he said that you know current tenants will have first right of refusal but technically this developer isn't required to. And like you just explained, you know, just a portion of the property is in a zone that would be subject to this active employment ordinance, which is likely only going to require a percentage of those units be for locals who work here or locals who have a work history here. Yeah, exactly. So a couple of the other members of the planning commission said that 
it's just a hard balance to strike when you have to lose housing in order to gain housing. Mm. And I think there's probably, you know, on people's minds is, you know, how difficult it is to find other housing in Moab. So if you, even if you have like a year's notice, Mm -hmm. um, it's still not guaranteed that you will find a place to live. Definitely. Um, The Moabs and News also has a story about the cancellation this time around of the Book Cliffs Highway. Yeah, so the Book Cliffs Highway um, is this proposed project that would have created a 35-mile road between um, Vernal and Moab, or the road would help connect Vernal and Moab. Um, And so this thing has been in the works for forever, and it's also been off and on for a really long time. Um, And most recently, the project was tabled in December 2020 because Grand County is openly opposed to this project. Um, And it was also tabled in December because of a lack of funding. Um, In 2019, the Seven County Infrastructure Coalition, which is the um, coalition that wants to build the project, they found that the estimated cost was between 200 and 400 million. In December, it was tabled for those reasons. And then the project was revived again in May when the SCIC believed there would be an influx of funds from a federal infrastructure package. But then it came up again, a meeting on March 10th, and the vote to cancel the project was split four to three. So representatives from Carbon, Emory, San Juan, and Seaver counties voted to cancel the project. And representatives from Daggett, Duchesne, and um, Wintock counties voted for it. So during the meeting, you know, was there talk of, for the commissioners who, their coalition members who did vote to cancel it this time mm-hmm. around, um, what, were, what were their thoughts um, this time? Yeah, so um, Carbon County Commissioner Casey Hopes said that he thought that the project would decrease the amount of funding to the rest of the roads in our communities and also just decrease the focus of current projects at the SCIC. They're currently working on a railway, which is another controversial project that would transport oil from eastern Utah to larger markets. And they're working on creating an energy research center. And so he just said that he thinks that this Book Cliffs Highway project would dilute what energy the mm. coalition does have. Okay, from other projects. Right. Um, now, there is a sense in our community and maybe elsewhere that the project, you know, because people have been talking about a highway through the Book Cliffs since the 1980s, mm-hmm. that this project or some other project might come back around. Can you can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so the Daggett County Commissioner, Jack Lytle, said that, um, you know, he voted not to cancel the project. And he said that he's of the mind that the coalition will get it built when they can and when it makes more sense. Mm. Um, so it was kind of this sense that they're almost tabling it again. Okay, right. And if we can go to some fun stuff, Allie, you told me before we started recording that the Backyard Theater is back and the sun has a little bit of a profile. Yeah, so Moab's Backyard Theater is this little music venue um, that's tucked away along 100 South. And it's just big enough to have a stage, a seating area, and recently a food truck. But yeah, I think the Backyard Theater is just kind of like this little institution in Moab. They have bluegrass and honky-tonk music, and they also have magic shows. Um, And so now that the weather's getting warmer again, those events are returning for the season. So what's on the lineup ahead? (laughs) Yeah, so on Wednesdays and Thursdays, um, Quicksand Soup, which is a bluegrass band, will play. 
Um, and then on Saturdays, Rick Beretti will have a magic show. And in April, there will be a couple outside bands, which is kind of a new thing for the Backyard Theater. Um, I talked to a sand chef who runs the theater, and he said that these bands just started reaching out to him, and he was really happy to provide a venue. So on Friday nights in April, there will be outside bands playing. On April 1st, it's Pale Dream, which is an indie band from St. George. Um, on April 15th, Sunfish will play. They're an alternative rock band from Salt Lake City. And on April 29th, the theater will host Birds of Play, who is a bluegrass band from Telluride. Um, and in between those dates on Fridays in April, the honky-tonk band Juniper Drive will perform. And for the outside bands, um, tickets are $20, but usually music nights are free. Um, and if you enjoy the music, Chef said you can throw a buck in the can. Allison Harford, staff writer at the Moab Sun News. Subscription info and more stories can be found at moabsunnews.com. And that's it for the weekly newsreel, where we check in with reporters on their latest stories of the Moab area. You can find the pieces that were mentioned today in the show notes at our website, kzmu.org, or wherever you listen to the KZMU News podcast. As always, thanks for tuning in and supporting KZMU, community-powered radio.